You can turn in your um, bulletins or Bibles to Colossians 2. Um, slight change in title. We're going to, our title today is Christ, a Superior Guide. Christ, a Superior Guide. You guys ever seen the Disney version of the story of Pinocchio? It was made in 1940, but it's a classic seen by many uh, since then. Pinocchio is the story of a wooden puppet brought to life by his creator, Geppetto. And in in the Disney version of the story, Geppetto um, creates Pinocchio, but then a blue fairy comes along and gives him consciousness. And um, she also gives him the promise of maybe one day becoming fully human, a real boy. Now, in order to fulfill his destiny, to become who he's been created to be, to become who he's been promised to be, um, Pinocchio has to choose who he's going to follow as his guide. Two guides present themselves to this wooden puppet to show him the way forward. One guide is called Jiminy Cricket. He's an earnest, hardworking, honest insect who serves as Pinocchio's conscience. And Jiminy Cricket follows Pinocchio everywhere, and he gives him warnings, he gives him encouragements, and he points him the whole time to a vision of true north. That's Jiminy Cricket, his conscience. The other guy that presents themselves to Pinocchio is a, a lovable pair of creatures who call themselves Honest John the Fox and Gideon the Cat. They catch Pinocchio on his way to school, and they seem to have his best interest in mind. They really take a liking to him and offer to open doors of opportunity to him. They flatter him and just give him all kinds of attention and promises. But at the end of the day, Jiminy Cricket and Honest John and Gideon are going to call Pinocchio to follow two different paths. And Pinocchio has to choose between the two. He's got to figure out which guide is telling the truth, which guide is going to lead me down the path of becoming a real boy. And in many ways, the rest of the story is about the choice that he has to make between those two guides. Unlike Pinocchio, we are not wooden puppets. But this story, I think, has timeless appeal because we see our own human experience in the story of Pinocchio and his journey. Why? Because we're not fully shaped yet. We've been given a destiny and a promise of becoming fully human, of becoming like Christ if we're following him. But there's something incomplete about our lives, and we feel like we have to prove ourselves and get there and develop that we've got untapped potential, and um, we've got new levels of maturity that we haven't yet reached things inside of us that haven't yet been put right, but we know that they can be put right. Contributions that we want to make, but we haven't yet been able to make the contributions for one reason or another. And so, like Pinocchio, we are left with an agonizing choice. Whom do we follow to fulfill our purpose and become fully human, become fully ourselves, fulfill our destiny? This is one of the central questions of the whole book of Colossians. Which guide do we trust to make us complete? 
And this uh, morning's readings from Colossians make the choice very stark. Are we going to trust Jesus Christ to be our guide? Not just a savior, not just a wise teacher, but actually going to guide us into becoming fully human. Or are we going to trust his rivals? Because at the end of the day, you cannot have both to lead you into maturity. Which one is a more worthy leader? And Colossians 2, verses 6 through 8, you can imagine this is just sort of a a, a basic contrast that will help you understand the whole book. Because verses 6 and 7 make promises about what will happen to you and us if we follow Christ as our guide into maturity, and what will happen if we follow his rivals. In verses 6 and 7, Paul encourages us to follow Jesus Christ into maturity. Verse 6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him. Don't just receive him. He's talking very likely to people who have received the gift of baptism and through baptism, the gift of Jesus Christ as Lord. And he says, don't stop there. Don't just receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Walk in him and walk down the path of maturity that he leads you down. When he beckons you down his path, don't resist him. Follow him down that path. And then Paul's going to use some agricultural and architectural language to describe the impact of following Christ down that road of maturity. Verse 7, he says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Maturity in Christ means that our roots are going really deep, not just individually, but together as his people. Our roots are tapping down into deeper and deeper levels of the power and the life and the grace of Christ, and that's resulting in the fruit of our life. Deeper roots always mean, usually mean stronger leaves, stronger branches, stronger fruit, a plant, a tree that is fulfilling its purpose. It's an agricultural promise. And then there's an architectural image there um, where he says, built up in him and established in the faith. Picture a solid, well-constructed house that lasts the storms of life, the tests of life. It's that house built on a rock that really cannot be shaken because the foundation is so secure. The walls are so well-built. The windows are, I don't know, bulletproof. And it's just so solid unshakable, strong. You can't destroy or demolish it. But then finally, it's not just rooted, it's not just stable, but there's this sense of life that's, that's overflowing, where he says, abounding in thanksgiving, words that could be used of a vat of wine, like overflowing, overflowing with the best, tastiest wine of the new season. So we're not just solid and deeply rooted. We're also overflowing with thanksgiving. There's so many things to thank God for as he leads us into maturity that we just can't help ourselves but overflow. That's maturity in Christ. That's the promise. Now, what's the flip side of this? There's a warning, and the warning is in verse 8. Paul warns us against following any of his rivals. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. By philosophy, now just FYI, I love philosophy. I know you love philosophy, most likely, okay? He's not dissing philosophy as a discipline. He actually drew upon philosophy as a discipline. He's talking about a lot of talk 
He's talking about people who love to hear themselves talk and who deceive with those words. So let's keep reading. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Following Christ down his path of maturity leads to rootedness and flourishing. Following Christ's rivals leads to deception and bondage. And that, at the end of the day, is the choice that we have to make. Because we can be taken captive by empty talk, can't we? Empty traditions, empty spiritual powers. Um, Rivals to Christ deceive us into dead ends. That's what they do. They deceive us to follow them down a dead end, down a life that is ultimately cut off from the power of Christ, from the authority of Christ. Dead end spiritualism. Dead end self-loathing. Dead end conspiracies and conspiracy theories. Dead end resentments. Dead end revolts. Now, who are these rivals? Well, in Paul's day, in the day of the Colossians, it was people who followed the Jewish religion and claimed that it could supplant Christ and his claims, that it could complete Christ and his claims. But in our day, this still continues. You're not likely not, you know, drawn into uh, potentially, you know, some of the trappings of the Jewish religion popular in the first century. But there's plenty of powers, human and uh, spiritual, cut off from the power of Christ. It's anything in creation that's good that decides that it's going to dictate us away from Christ's path. It could be a corporation or a schoolyard bully. It could be a rogue angel promising us power or an HOA group. Could be a social media movement, a line of thought, a spiritual practice, a government, a podcast. It could be ourselves. Like Honest John and Gideon, Christ's rivals beckon and demand and pressure us away from the path of Christ. So here's the contrast. You can walk with Christ down his path of maturity, or you can walk with Christ's rivals down a deceptive dead end. And for the rest of the chapter, Paul is going to give us the reasons why Christ is a superior guide. And then after that, he's going to deconstruct what Christ's rivals are trying to do. And this is so helpful for us because we always need both, don't we? We need encouragements and warnings. Encouragements to keep following Christ and warnings against the seductive call of his rivals. This week is going to focus on the encouragement and next week is going to focus on the warning. And I hope you will join us for next week as well. Now, you might be here, you're not a Christian, you're still exploring the claims of Christ, maybe coming back to the faith, whatever uh, your case may be, all of us can ask three questions of any potential guide. And I think these three questions will help us choose well with wisdom who is more worthy to be our North Star.
The first question is personal investment. Is this guide willing to impart their life into ours? The second question is track record. Does their history speak to their credibility? And third is freedom. Does this guide set us free or make us slaves? Personal investment, track record, and freedom. We're going to ask these questions one at a time as we walk through the rest of our text in Colossians this morning. So first, personal investment. Is this guide willing to impart their life into ours? And the fact is we need that over the course of our life. We need mentors, parent figures, guides, sponsors, and teachers willing to impart their life into ours. You know what I'm talking about? This is on a basic level. This is a parent who sacrifices for us from infancy to adulthood. But it could be something like a soccer coach who spends extra time helping us develop our talent. Or a professional mentor who teaches us a new way of leading our team. This could be a professor who expands our knowledge with their knowledge. Or an investor who helps us start our business with their capital and with their experience. But what about Christ? What does he invest in us? Let's look together at verses 9 and 10. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of of deity dwells bodily. In him, the whole fullness of deity, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. Verse 10, and you, plural, you, the church, y'all, have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. What a remarkable statement. The whole fullness of the Godhead, the whole fullness of the deity dwells in a man with flesh and bones, with a beating heart. The whole fullness of God dwells in Christ bodily. And we have been filled in him. We, the flesh and blood living church, have been united with him. Isn't that incredible? He invests everything he has in us. And make no mistake, there is no lack in him, none whatsoever. He has everything to give. One theologian says, all that God is dwells in Christ. He's overflowing with power and life and authority. He is the head of all rule and authority. And when we trust him, he fills us. He imparts his very life into us. He gives us his spirit, his mind, His wisdom, his knowledge, his kingdom is ours. His gifts are ours. It's ours. It's our possession. It's our inheritance forever and ever. Christ does not hold back. He does not withhold himself. He does not withhold his love. He does not withhold his presence. He does not withhold his gifts. He's not an exacting, miserly, withdrawing, contemptuous Savior, everything we are afraid that he might be because of how far short we fall. He loves us so much. He's ready to pour out and give and fill. He fills those who open their lives to him, who have need. He's not drawn away from our need. He's drawn toward our need to fill it. And he fills it with glory. And he provides for our needs. And he gives of his unending resources. Now, when you read the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, 
You could read any one of those like watching for ways that Jesus invests his life in others. And it's, you know, it's pretty basic stuff. He, he sleeps, you know, they, they go on trips together. He, he, they eat together. He trains them. Then he sends them out, gives them the challenge. And then he receives them back to help them process that challenge. He, he gives them teaching. Uh, he gives them his very life. He gives them encouragement. I mean, he's always investing in people. And then he invested his whole mission in them and said, I'll be with you the whole time. I love how Psalm 73 also kind of captures this in a different way, the personal investment of of God in us. Um, This is the psalmist praying to the Lord. He says, I'm continually with you. you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Wow. What an investment. He says, my heart and my flesh may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you need guidance in your life? You're not sure what to do? Do you need a guide who will impart not just advice, but their very life into you? Hold your right hand through whatever you're facing right now. You have a, you have a savior who will do that for you. He's going he's gonna to take your right hand and lead you down the path of maturity. Not yank you down the path of maturity, lead you down. Be your counsel, be your right-hand person, be your helper, be your counselor to uphold you with his righteous right hand. Are you lacking resources, time, money, energy, other resources? Do you know that, that uh, he gives power to the faint? Gives power to the faint? puts you on eagle's wings, gets you to where he needs you to go, covers you, covers you with his pinions. You're like, he's like a mother hen. He's like covering you. Provides food for the hungry. Are you fatherless? Are you motherless? He will personally adopt you. He will personally adopt you as his own son and his own daughter. He loves to personally adopt. Be like, I'm going to be your father. You don't have a father right now. He will, he will be your father. He will fill you with his fatherly love. Are you weak, voiceless, without an advocate? He can fill you with the dignity that he has created you with. He can fill you with power, right power, proper power. He can give you the agency that has been taken away from you. God is personally invested in Christ And Christ is personally invested in everyone who follows him as Lord. Now, by comparison, his rivals are quite less willing to invest in us. Quite less. When we're choosing a guide, one of the red flags to watch out for is when they do a lot of talking, but they do very little investing. You know what I'm talking about? Lots of talk but they don't really give much. In his book, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis made the distinction between propagation and propaganda. Propagation is when someone imparts to us their very life, and it leads to things like verse 6 and 7 talked about, rootedness, stability, flourishing. That's propagation. That's life being multiplied. Propaganda 
is when someone takes us captive with ideas they don't believe and rules they don't keep. Now, Honest John and Gideon were experts in propaganda. Even his name, Honest John, was a bit of propaganda. They pretended to care about Pinocchio. But all they were really doing was manipulating him for their own profit. They were human traffickers. I mean, you can watch it. They're human trafficking Pinocchio or puppet trafficking. Pinocchio. They convinced him to skip school and head for what we call, what is called Pleasure Island, where boys could be as lazy, destructive, and hedonistic as they pleased. But as soon as Pinocchio got on the donkey cart to head off to Pleasure Island, Honest John and Gideon the Cat were nowhere to be found. Only Jiminy Cricket stayed with him to continue helping him in any way that he could. Propaganda and propagation. Paul pleads with the Colossians and with those who read Colossians to receive the propagation of Christ and resist the propaganda of his rivals. Propagation leads to deeper roots and a life overflowing with the presence of God. Propaganda gets us riled up and leaves us exhausted from its demands and its ideals. Personal investment. Does Christ impart his life into us? The answer is yes. And so let's move on to the second question, and that is track record. Does their history speak to their credibility? Does this mentor, this guide's history Speak to their credibility. Before we follow someone down a path of belief or behavior, we need to see the fruit in their own life. Now, soon after the Colossian church formed, some new guides came along. They didn't really have a track record. They were just good at talking. And so they suggested to these brand new Christians that Jesus was only one step toward maturity. And they convinced them that they just needed to do all, they needed to jump through all of the hoops contained in the Old Testament, submit to all those laws and trappings. And it was this subtle reverse of the gospel so that um, it was like instead of Jesus Christ fulfilling the Jewish law, which is true, like the Jewish law was good and right and given in grace, and Jesus Christ fulfilled it. But there's this subtle reversal where they said, no, 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 actually, the Jewish law fulfills Jesus Christ. You've come part of the way. You need to go the rest. You need to go the rest of the way if you really want to be mature. And the sticking point was something called circumcision. They said, if you've come to Christ, you want to seal the deal, you need to get circumcised. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail on this matter. Suffice to say that circumcision is the removal of skin from one part of the male anatomy. It is a bloody, tender process. And for a time, circumcision was an outward symbol of God's covenant with Israel. It symbolized God's grace for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all their descendants. By submitting to circumcision, at that time, you were submitting to God. Your body and its passions and its appetites are now yielded to God, cooperative, surrendered. That was the symbol that it represented. And so these false teachers claimed... Why aren't you circumcised yet? I mean, do you want to be a true member of the covenant, dude? Do you want to surrender to God? And Paul's going to counter 
that argument by pointing to Christ's track record. Consider what Christ has already accomplished. In verse 11, in him, Jesus, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. All right. If you're one of the men in the Colossian church reading this for the first time, I mean, this is the only argument you need, right? It's like, yes! It's a spiritual circumcision. There's no knife required. Like, that's a truck worker I can get behind. And, and that's true. That, like, there should be some relief as you read Colossians. For the Colossians themselves, it was saved them from a kind of a very bloody process. The circumcision of Christ was accomplished on the cross once for all. And it was a very significant accomplishment. Let's just slow down. Emma, ask you to track with me on this. So when Jesus Christ was being killed, he was killing the power of sin. And this is the great reversal. And you see that Paul talking about this in a number of different ways. But in this instance, Jesus Christ killed the power of sin to make us callous toward God. He killed the power of sin in that uh, it tends to corrupt us and make us incapable of receiving God's grace. Jesus Christ killed the power of sin to hold sway over us. And uh, when Jesus Christ was being raised to life, he was raising to life anyone who were under the power of sin and death. All of us who trust him. And he was marking them as his own forever. So forever, those who have been joined to this death and joined to this resurrection have no need for a physical circumcision. When we confess him as Lord and we receive the sacrament of baptism, whether as infants, children, or adults, we are circumcised in his death and in his resurrection. And it is complete. Christ's track record is ours, and it is enough. It is finished. Put your knives away. Dance for joy. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, Paul says elsewhere. The old is gone. The new is here. Now, sure, there are implications. How do we live out this circumcision? And later in the book, Paul will, will tease out some of the implications of, well, sure, if you've taken on the circumcision of Christ, it's going to change how you live. And that might be a little painful, right? Unlearning bad habits is always painful. Uh, putting away malice, putting away lust, taking on forgiveness, taking on love. Well, that's a process, isn't it? We're still in that process, aren't we? But the track record is ours. We rest in that. We live in that. We own that. There's no need for knives. There's no need for extra rules. There's only Christ and his path. Paul's point here is to commend us to Christ, commend his track record to us based on what he's already accomplished and take a hard pass on all those extra rules and extra ideals. How do we know whom to trust and follow? 
Well, you know, we look at personal investment. Are they giving their life to us? We look at their track record. Does their history lend itself to credibility? And then finally, freedom. Freedom. Does this guide set us free or make us slaves? After he arrived on Pleasure Island, Pinocchio uh, went wild, right? He uh, indulged to his heart's content. He gorged on food and vices and fistfights. And all the while, he was coming under the curse of the island. Um, and uh, so were all the boys around him. They were all coming under this curse. His pleasure island was a cursed island. Instead of turning into a real boy, Pinocchio began to actually transform into a perverted version of himself, which was a donkey. And that was the whole point of the island, was to turn boys into donkeys. And those donkeys were then sold um, into slavery. They were sold into the salt mines for a profit because behind the deceptions of Honest John and Gideon was an even greater evil, the coachman who was driving the donkey cart in the first place. He ran the whole island. It was a whole scheme he had going on. It was a whole system that Pinocchio and his friends were got, got caught up in, a system which was cursed, a system which led to sin and death. They were deceived into vices, and then they were condemned in their vices, and then they were put in cages never to escape. Behind every false guide in this life is an enslaving spiritual force like the coachman. And here in Colossians 2, Paul calls them rulers and authorities. These are spiritual beings and spiritual gangs, you could call them, that promise us freedom, but entice us into slavery. They deceive, they enslave, and then they accuse. That is their way. Temptation, entrapment, accusation. These are the menacing powers behind every false guide that would enslave us and pressure us. On our own, we are no match for these spiritual gangs. They're very powerful. We would be doomed. Yet here is what Christ did for us. He won our freedom for us. Read with me uh, in verse 13 and following. And you, you all who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, in these verses, Paul describes what seemed to be a type of contest between Christ the liberator and the cosmic debt collectors, here called the rulers and authorities, or the the, chain, the spiritual chain gang. This contest happened in human history 2,000 years ago when Christ was nailed to the cross. And you can imagine with me a massive debtor's prison. Debtor's prisons were used in the Victorian era. People who couldn't pay their debts were basically uh, made to serve in slave labor for the rest of their life until their debt was paid off. But the, it was like rigged so that you never quite paid off the debt. This still happens in many parts of the world, and you could arguably still happens in the United States, a debtor's prison where, um, you know, it houses all the people from all of history, this cosmic debtor's prison. It's cursed like Pleasure Island. 
And everyone inside is as good as what Paul calls dead in their trespasses. They're as good as dead. And these rulers and authorities run the prison, and they do so by legal right. They have in their possession a record of debt, and it lists out everything we've ever done to land us in prison. Everything that stands against us with its legal demands, they have all the footage. They have all the goods. They have the smoking gun that prove our guilt and give them the rights to keep us locked up until we're dead. And then Christ, the debt payer, shows up. God's own son, God's own image. He shows up to the gate and he pounds on the gate of the debtor's prison. And he says, come on out. I am here to pay the debt of everyone in this prison. And the rulers and authorities who have up till now been incognito, holding the goods on us, boy, do they come out of the woodwork. And they surround God's son. They surround his precious son. And they accuse him. And they beat him. And they condemn him. And they violently, violently nail him to the cross. Cursed by the religious elite. Cursed by the political elite. Cursed and dying and dead. A scandal. And for a time, all hope seemed to be lost. He was dead. We were still trapped. Yet in the process of his death, what did Jesus do? He disarmed these so-called rulers and authorities. He took from them the one thing they had on us, which was the record of debt. He took that. He nailed it to the cross along with all of its legal demands and its accusations against us. And in the process, he caught them in the act of the most heinous crime in all of human history, which was putting to death God's own son. And now he has the goods on them. And they've been publicly exposed. They've been publicly captured. They have killed the righteous son of God, and he was innocent. And now, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And now, guess who's in the prison? The rulers and authorities. It's time for a little prisoner exchange. The prisoners get to go free, and the prison guards are now behind the bars themselves, trapped by their own legal demands, which they violated in the presence of all, heaven and earth. And we can go free. The prison gates shut on them, and open for us. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Christ the liberator, he is alive today. God raised him to life. And he brings freedom for everybody who's willing to follow him out of that prison. In order to become truly free, we must be forgiven. Otherwise, our trespasses hang over us like an albatross. And in order to become truly free, we must forgive. Otherwise, we will carry around the sins of others like bricks and boulders in our backpack. Can your guides forgive you? 
Can they teach you how to forgive? Or do they expect you to carry their grievances on their behalf? Do they make you free? Do they set you free? Or do they just make you slaves? My dear brothers and sisters, beware of any guide who beckons you back into the debtor's prison. In that prison, resentment towards others and hatred towards yourself only festers. This prison does not have the power to free you or bring true justice. You have been freed from that prison if you are in Christ, and I plead with you, do not go back in. Jesus Christ can offer you his deep and abiding forgiveness. He has paid the price, and he loves you, and he does not want you burdened by sins committed in the past, either by you or anyone else. He wants to teach you how to forgive. He wants to teach you to walk in freedom. He wants to lighten your load, not make it heavier. This does not mean excusing behavior. This does not mean excusing bad things happening. This does not mean not seeking justice, none of that. Forgiveness is a condition of the soul. It is a freeing condition where we have received forgiveness and we have learned how to offer it. After his many missteps, uh, Pinocchio finally, finally learns to follow Jiminy Cricket. And the key moment is when Jiminy Cricket springs Pinocchio out of Pleasure Island when he's half donkey, half puppet. He gets him out. He finds a way, leads him out. And um, before the donkey curse could fully take root, he leads Pinocchio through a death and resurrection experience um, involving uh, some water and a fish, a little bit like Jonah. And, uh, and on the other end of that, he becomes a real boy by grace. By grace, he's forgiven. He becomes fully human. No matter how long we have strayed from Christ or how far we have strayed from Christ, or if we've never been in Christ in the first place, he is ready to spring us free from whatever prison we're in, to impart to us his life. You know, he's ready to lead us, whatever our starting point. I don't care what your starting point is this morning. He's ready to lead you with his own right hand, uh, down his path of maturity. He's ready to lead you into rootedness. He's ready to lead us into stability. He is ready to lead us to a life overflowing with thanksgiving. So let us turn aside with all diligence, with all passion, turn aside from false guides and their propaganda and their smooth talk and follow Christ down the solid, secure, rooted, fruitful path of his maturity forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.